0: you're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I wanted to show you a book. Look at this thing, Look how big this thing is. It's called The Seven Bas- Bas- Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories. And this is kind of an influential book written a while ago. Oh man, the print is small too. I haven't read much of it yet. But what he argues in this big giant book is that all of the stories that humans and beings have been telling fall really into seven basic plots. That uh, that human beings, as, as as I think, people made in God's image, as a storytelling God, and uh, and part of our image um, being and made in His image is a love for stories, a love for stories, a love for meaning. Um, there's something unique about that, and here are the seven basic plots that he says. Basically, all stories fit into these seven basic plots, and why, and what they say about humanity. We have, number one, Overcoming the Monster. Can you think of a movie or a story that is about overcoming the monster? Uh, maybe Star Wars or something like that. There's the Rags to Riches story. Can you think of the Rags to Riches story? Anybody? Cinderella? Cinderella, yep, that's a, that's a good one. Great expectations would be another classic. Voyage and return. Going on a voyage and then coming back home. The Odyssey. the Odyssey perhaps. Yeah. The Wizard of Oz. Yep. Yep. How about the quest? The quest. It's similar to the similar to the voyage and return, but the quest you have a mission to accomplish. It's not just about getting back, it's about accomplishing something. Yeah, Indiana Jones. Maybe The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we got to stir this ring, although there's a Voyage and Return there, too. The comedy, like uh, the great literary cl- or movie classic of the three amigos. It's just silly, something to make you happy. There's the tragedy. Can you think of a tragedy? Is there any famous tragedies? What the love? Marley and me. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Citizen Kane, if any of you like super old movies. Uh, the rebirth. Then there's the rebirth story. Beauty and the Beast, A Christmas Carol, Scrooge, right? Yeah. All of these great story arcs touch our hearts and have a timeless quality because there's something about them that communicates meaning and something about this, uh, this world that we live in and, uh, and what it means to be a part of it. And I would say that the story of God, the story of the gospel, really encompasses and has connection points with each one of these narratives. In the gospel, the story of God, the story of scripture, we have the overcoming the monster as God defeats the evil one and sin through Jesus. We have the rags to riches as poor enemies of God are enthroned to become precious sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ. We have voyage and return in the quest as God sends his son to go and redeem a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation and to return to him. In fact, he even sends us out as missionaries to all nations to share the good news of the gospel. It's a comedy. There's a good news quality to this that that in Jesus, he subverts our expectations. The Bible actually has a lot of really amusing things in it. He upsets, he upsets our expectations of a Messiah, and it, it, the least expected people receive him. And it's just kind of funny. We're going to see that in Mark, just the irony and the comedy of how people respond to Jesus. And then we have the tragedy. The tragedy is that some people will not receive this good news. And they, um, and that will be, so, so the, the big story also has a tragedy element to it. And then the rebirth. As corrupted sinners made in God's image are reborn, are made into glorified saints through the work of Jesus Christ. So it's all there. All of these great stories are echoes or offshoots of the one grand story that we're all a part of, that we're all characters in. And so as we think about this great story, the gospel story, I thought it would be good for us to go to the gospel of Mark. And Mark is one of the four gospels, a biography of Jesus compiled by eyewitnesses and written down. Mark wasn't a direct eyewitness that we know of, but through the eyes of Peter, uh, Peter was his mentor for much of his life. I think we have in Mark the eyewitness account of Peter. The Apostle Peter on who Jesus is and what he's done and why his story is the greatest story of all. So what I want to do in our time together is give you three kind of movements, three parts to this message here. The first is to talk about Mark's story and the features of Mark's story. So as we enter into this gospel, I'm trying to give you an introduction to it. And I want you to put down, I want to just describe some features of this book that are unique to this book in relation to the other four Gospels. And I want you to notice it as we've, you know, I've been immersing myself in Mark most of the summer, just loving this Gospel. And I want to just point out some things to watch for as we begin this journey, okay? So like a good tour guide, hey, watch for this, watch for that, watch for that. Mark is doing some really, really amazing things in his Gospel, and I want you to catch it. So if you've got one of these journals, these first two parts, Mark's features might be a good thing to write in the back, because we're only going to get to verse one today, and if you write it all here, then you won't have room for the next. So... If you want to put some of these features and then Mark's story, backstory, if you want to put that kind of in the back on one of those black, black blank pages, I think that'll help you budget your note-taking a little bit better, just so you know. So that'll be the first thing, is the features of Mark's story that I really want you to catch and to enjoy and to look for as we begin this journey. The second thing I want to do is look at the backstory of Mark. One of the important things in order to get what, the, um, what each of the gospel writers is writing about is to understand who the author is. Like it really helps. It really helps to know a little bit about Matthew and where he's coming from as a Jewish man who's a tax collector, when he writes his gospel, because that helps you understand why he is seeing things the way he does and why he highlights certain things. John the Apostle. It's nice to know a little bit about John as you read his gospel, because he's highlighting things. Uh, Luke, knowing Luke's story and why he is such a meticulous note taker and why his gospel is so ridiculously long, is because he's such a good researcher. He's a doctor. He's educated, and so to know who Mark is and his backstory, I think will make this gospel come alive. It didn't just float down on a pillow. It came through a man with a story and an experience of the gospel that is, I think, going to be really helpful. So we're going to do that second. And then lastly, we're going to look at Mark 1.1 and just look at the beginning of this gospel. Just look at the very first sentence in the book because it really is his thesis statement. It really is the point of the whole gospel. So that's where we're going so that you kind of know what to expect and uh, hopefully that helps you pay attention. So let's look at Mark's story features here. Mark can really be divided up into two main parts. Mark's a fairly simple guy. He's got two parts. Part 1, part 2. Part 1 is chapter 1, verse 1 through 821. And really, Mark is arguing that Jesus is the divine king. He's the son of God. He has authority over demons. He has authority over diseases. He has authority over death. He has authority over another D that I'm not thinking of right now. And his authority over nature, and so you just see that man. This Jesus is the king. He is the divine king who rules all of creation, rules everything in it. Then we start to see a switch at the end of Mark chapter eight, where we we move beyond what it is, who it is, Jesus is, and then go, what did he come to do? What did he come to do? And what we find is that this king rules by serving and suffering. He totally subverts our expectations. We expect a king to come and conquer and rule and make everyone serve him. And what we're going to find is that this is a king, this is a messiah that we never would have expected who's actually going to serve and suffer. He's going to be a different kind of king. So he has power over all things, and he's going to use that power to serve people, which is unlike any king that we've ever seen. So part one, Jesus is the divine king who rules. Part two will be the king who rules by serving and suffering. If we were to put a key verse here, it's Mark 10, 45. If you were to kind of summarize what... Go back. Yep, there you go. The key verse will be Mark 10, 45, where Jesus himself kind of just cuts right to the chase with his disciples and says, The Son of Man, it's a term he uses for himself, we'll get to that in a second, did not come to be served like almost every other king that you've ever experienced in your life, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Most kings, they ask you to give... Their life, your life for them, right? They send you to war. They make you pay taxes. You go to death for your king. This will be a king who will go to death for you. And again, I think this is all through the eyes of Peter. Well, watch that because Jesus is on screen. He's on center stage throughout this gospel. There's only two times, and it's related to John the Baptist, where Jesus is not like center stage at all times. It is Jesus' center of this whole gospel and it's kind of unique because the other gospels wander off and tell other stories every now and then but jesus remains fixated at the very center of this whole gospel and i think it's written by peter as we just think of the experiences and the dialogue and some of that stuff i think mark as a disciple of peter is recording peter's experiences so um, we'll come back to that in a second so here's some just some things to expect and watch for this is the next slide there ben okay first of all this book is fast It is speedy, okay? He uses the word immediately. Like, just go to Mark chapter 1 for just a second and just scan down it and look for the word immediately. Like, he is just, Mark is clicking along. He must have ADD because he gets like two verses and he's like moving on to something else. Like, he moves fast. But just think, look in Mark 1, just glance down it, and how many times do you see the word immediately? I'll give you just a second to actually do that. Look at that. Nine times in the first chapter. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 23, verse 29, verse 30, and verse 42. He's fast. Like he hits the ground running. He has this opening sentence. The gospel, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then off he goes to the races. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the Christmas story. doesn't talk a lot about Mary and Joseph. Not interested in that. Getting to the point getting to Jesus center stage who he is and what he's doing and he doesn't include hardly he, he includes the least amount of teachings of Jesus this gospel has the least amount of Jesus's teachings because for Mark it's not so much what Jesus teaches that is so important that is important but who he is and what he's done because what saves you is not what Jesus teaches but what he did on your behalf who he was and what he did on your behalf now we don't want to divorce that from his teaching but Mark wants you to see Jesus, for who he is, and what he is doing. So Mark is very action-oriented, all right? So there'll be teachings, but it's way less. He's like, I want you to see who Jesus is and what he's doing. So pay attention to that as he goes through. He's fast. This gospel moves really, really fast, so that'll be fun. Second, sandwiches. Mmm, it's lunchtime. Almost lunchtime. Sandwiches. Mark does this really interesting thing when it comes to uh, that, we, that scholars call a Mark and Sandwich. He begins a story, and then he interrupts it, and then comes back and concludes the story. And what he does is he's making a theological point. We're going to see these again and again, where he starts a story, Jesus is interrupted, or there's some sort of teaching, or there's some sort of question that inserts it, and then he finishes the story. So watch for sandwiches, because Mark is doing this on purpose. He's telling the story in such a way that the middle section, the meat in the middle of the sandwich, interprets the experience of what's going on. He's making a theological point through this arrangement of sandwiches. So look for some delicious sandwiches. Look for irony. Mark loves to highlight the unexpected. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're expecting. He knows what his readers are expecting. And he loves to flip it. Like things just go completely, he, he, he swerves on us. He goes a different direction. He highlights the irony. He loves to highlight the unexpected. Jesus has everyone off balance and Mark loves that. And he loves highlighting how Jesus has always got everyone on balance. Off balance, he's never what they expect. And so um, the people who get it are not who you would expect. The people who don't get it aren't what you would expect. The people that Jesus is drawn to is not who you would expect. And he doesn't say the things that you would expect. So Mark loves to highlight the irony and the unexpected. And I would just encourage you that if you've grown up around Christianity and you know the Jesus story, as we go through this gospel, try to put on as if you're reading it for the first time. Like let the surprises catch you. We're not going to look at a lot of other Gospels. We're going to let Mark tell the story the way he wants to. So we will very rarely, if at all, look at where this story happens in another Gospel because Mark is fully capable, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to tell us the story as he wants to tell it. And the way that he is arranging the information, the way he's presenting the information, is meant to make an impression on us. And so I I would encourage us to let Mark tell the story the way God led Mark to tell the story and to be surprised when something crazy happens. Be amazed. Be offended when something comes up that's offensive in the text. So I just encourage you to do that as we go through that. Uh, let 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 the twists and turns surprise and puzzle you. And, uh, and we won't bring a lot of other stuff into this series because uh, this gospel stands on its own quite well and makes an impression that's different than the other gospels. A third thing, fourth thing, is insiders and outsiders. So watch for that in this gospel is that Who is inside and who is outside? There's a lot of this going on, where Jesus makes it very clear that those who get him are on the inside, those who don't are on the outside. There's a very clear line of insiders and outsiders. There's not a lot of squishy middle, of sort of kind of in, kind of out. Jesus will draw a straight line that if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Like the line is really, really clear. The calling is very, very high. The cost is very, very high. And the grace is very, very stunning. So insiders and outsiders. Let me give you an example from Mark chapter 9, or Mark chapter 4, sorry. Okay, so watch this. Here's an example of Mark chapter 4 of a sandwich, irony, and insider-outsider language, okay? So this, this cool story right here, just to give you a little bit of an appetizer for what's coming later. Watch what Mark does with this story and see if you can't see some of these things that I'm talking about. And if you're watching for these, I think, I think this will, like, all of a sudden, it's like this gospel will start to become in 3D. So Mark chapter 4, verses 20 through 35. We'll just look at these 16 verses real quick. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. So we have the idea of the family being inside. Jesus is outside, coming back. insider outsider. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay? So Jesus is the outsider in this case. His hometown and his family are the insiders. He's out of his mind. And then look what happens. There's an interruption. Here's meat and sandwich. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he, called out, and he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, watch this theme of house, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So, so Jesus' family's in their town. His family's in the house. Jesus is on the outside, right? So Jesus is the apparent outsider. They're the insiders. The scribes are the apparent insiders. And Jesus is talking about inside, outside. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the Son of Man and whoever blasphemes and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is forgiven of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit and his mothers and brothers came and what standing outside. Oh, who's the outsiders now? Those who are rejecting Jesus, those who are rejecting the prompting of the Holy Spirit to come to Jesus and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside. So we have this ironic flip, right? People that you know, Jesus was on the outside of these people. Now that's flipped, and Jesus has just given them some teaching that says, No, your understanding of who's in and who's out, which kingdom they're a part of, which house they're a part of. He flips it, and we see this sandwich happening. We see this point being made. Your brothers and sisters, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my brother, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So there, you see a sandwich, right? The story is interrupted by this teaching, by this scribe. There's this irony because you would think, oh, well, they're the insiders. Jesus is the outsider, but Jesus flips it on him, And then we have this insider-outsider language that's actually modeled by uh, the house, the house in the town. Like, he was once on the outside, now he's the inside, he and his apostles. Now his family's standing on the outside and others are inside. And these are who his real followers are. So Mark is doing this all the time. Where he does this clever kind of back and forth, where he uses the narrative to make a theological point, and he inserts it right in the middle. So, uh, fifth, look for faith and discipleship. We find that faith and discipleship are intertwined and inseparable, kind of like James: faith and works are intertwined. Mark eight thirty-four through thirty-eight says the calling the crowd to him with his disciples. This is right at the pivot point where we move from who Jesus is and what he's doing to now why has he come. This is right at the pivot point where he now begins to shift into not just teaching about who he is, but now what he's come to do and what it means to follow him in Mark chapter 8. So this is right at the pivot point from part one to part two. He says, Calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, from him even the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this theme of faith and discipleship, following Jesus, is wonderful, but it it comes at a cost. This theme of the way happens again and again. The way always points to the cross. It's a quest. It's a journey. Jesus is always on the way. These immediately, Jesus is always moving towards the cross. Which is crazy. God's city, the king, should be coming to Jerusalem to a throne. But what we find that surprises us in the Gospel of Mark is that this king is coming to God's city, Jerusalem, but he's coming to go on a cross. We have this ironic thing of going on the way. And if we're going to be on the way with Jesus, we need to expect also not a a throne, but a cross. This theme of authority... Jesus is always in charge at all times. You'll just see that Jesus has always got his hands on the steering wheel. He's always in charge of every social situation. Even at his crucifixion, he seems to be totally in charge of what's going on. He's the king. He's at center stage. He's the one that's always in charge. And then we have this interplay between this title, Son of God and Son of Man. Son of God is how Mark opens his gospel. The The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And then we only see the Son of God pop up a couple of times until we finally have a human being confessing it at his crucifixion. The centurion, the surprising centurion, the executioner is the one who finally gets who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God. But throughout the gospel, 15 times, Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of Man. And what we have is we have a couple of different things going on that we're going to look at. Because the Bible promised both a Son of Man, who would come and suffer, Isaiah 53, but also a Son of God, Daniel 7, I think it is that one like a son of God will come. And what's weird is that Jewish people are not fully aware that that's actually going to be the same person, that there's going to be someone who's going to be both a king and one who suffers. And so Jesus, using these two terms of son of man, son of God, we see that Jesus is both human, son of man, and divine, son of God. He is both servant, son of man, and master, son of God. He is a crucified, son of man, king, son of God. And so we watch those titles over and over again. Watch who says them. Watch what they mean. How they connect to the Old Testament. Mark interweaves these titles, Son of God, Son of Man, together. Okay? So that's some of the features to look for. I know I just gave you a bunch of things. Just write them down. We'll pick those up. We'll pick those up. We'll pick up those crumbs, those breadcrumbs as we go. Mark's story, backstory. Let's get a little bit of a background picture of who Mark is, the author of this book, and why his story really does matter, I think, in terms of how we're to receive this story. Uh, this gospel did not just float down on a pillow. It didn't just kind of come down, kind of all put together. This is a gritty gospel with a lot of details in it and a lot of things going on. And it's written in such a way because it comes from a story. God writes through people and he uses their experiences, uses their education, using, uses their personalities and experiences to write the gospel And so, we need to understand that there's a backstory of Peter in this. Peter is called by Jesus. He's one of the inner three. He makes a glorious confession that Jesus is the Christ and then immediately screws it up by rebuking Jesus. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He walks on the water. Peter gets an insider look at Jesus in remarkable and amazing ways. And there's certain things that only Peter has gotten to do, like walk on water and preach at Pentecost. But he's he's also the guy who's a bit of a bonehead. He's says things he shouldn't say. He denies Jesus three times in great shame. And then he's restored to his office and to service by Jesus in John chapter 21. And less than two months later, he's preaching at Pentecost. So God, Jesus has a very special place for Peter. And Peter, I think, knowing that he's seen amazing things and been such a dramatic failure that the way that he sees Jesus as we see it in this gospel, I think is really important. Peter is a huge failure redeemed by God. He's reborn into a faithful servant. He's not without faults and failures, even after his restoration, but ultimately he's faithful to the end. And ultimately, according to church history, says that he was crucified upside down, unworthy to be crucified like Jesus was. He was asked to be crucified upside down. And, uh, and so he was ultimately, while he had ups and downs, failures and restorations, lots of things that he wishes he could do over again, he does ultimately make it to the end because of the faithfulness of Jesus. But the co- comeback story of Mark, I think this will be fun for us to look at for just a few minutes. So in order to understand John Mark, the one who's actually writing this down, um, we need to know who a few characters are here. So let's, let's look at, I think I have some pictures up here. This is from Instagram. So we have Barnabas, also known as Joseph. And uh, Joseph is right there at the very outset. Joseph Barnabas Barnabas was his nickname. Barnabas just means son of encouragement. This dude was so great to be around that they just started calling him son of, of encouragement. They just gave him a new name. But he shows up for the first time in Mark chapter, or I'm not sorry, not Mark, Acts chapter four, as an early example of profound generosity, gentleness, and courage. He is highlighted early on in the midst of this early um, church as being particularly, particularly generous, particularly gentle, particularly courageous then we have Paul or Saul that we meet in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 and it says that he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord so you couldn't have a more different person than Barnabas right Barnabas who's just the encourager from the very beginning he's been an encourager he's been a unifier he's been generous he's just been a model of everything that you would want in a Christian leader and then you have Saul Paul who's a persecutor he's a Pharisee he wants to put people to death in fact it seems like he assisted and gave approval to the death of Stephen in the first, uh, the first martyr. But he is dramatically changed. Paul, Saul, knocked off his donkey by Jesus Christ himself and converted in Acts chapter 9. And for a few years, he's out in the wilderness. He's out in the wilderness learning, restudying, rethinking his life, gloriously converted. And what happens is, is that the, Paul, the, the apostles, the twelve, are suspicious of Paul's conversion, right? That's convenient. The guy, the assassin that's trying to take you out is now trying to join you, right? So they're suspicious of Paul's conversion, and they won't meet with him. But then look who has the courage to go out and talk to this former assassin, this former persecutor, and go, you know what? I'll take the risk. I'll go talk to him. It was Barnabas. Barnabas was the only one that was courageous enough to go sit down with Saul, and let's just see if Jesus has actually changed him. Here's what happens in Acts chapter 9. When he had come to Jerusalem, meaning Paul, Saul, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. Like, these are the apostles that, like, raise people from the dead and heal people. And they're like, they are so unnerved by Saul and his reputation and the damage that he has done that they won't even meet with him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. There's no way that someone like Saul could be saved. There's no way the gospel could reach someone as bad and nasty as Saul. But, look at this, Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, he spoke to them, and how on Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is awesome. He's courageous, he's generous, he's kind, he's an encourager, and he has boldness to go, I'll go talk to him. What is he going to do, kill me? And he goes and goes, no, it's legit. And so Barnabas ends up being the one that unites Saul with the rest of the apostles. That's amazing. So Paul really owes Barnabas quite a bit, right? Barnabas vouched for him. Barnabas had the courage to go to Paul, to Saul, and to bring him into the fold. So what happens is Paul and Barnabas begin to strike up a really great friendship. And in Acts chapter 13, they're in the same church together in Antioch. And so here's what it says in Acts thirteen one through 5. Now they were in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, and Cyrene, Menean, the long friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to. So we're commissioning the very first mission team in the New Testament in Christian history. The Holy Spirit wants them to set apart these two men to go and do a special work of sharing the gospel and planting churches across the world. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The missionaries always sent from churches. So they sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went out to Seleucia, and when they had sailed to Cyprus, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had who? John, John Mark to assist them. Okay? So John Mark is brought along on this mission team, this early mission team. He's a cousin of Barnabas. He's from Jerusalem. And John Mark, the author of this gospel, is part of this group. He's a young man, new, probably new to the faith. And he's going to go on this rough, rugged mission trip with them. So John Mark is with them. So there you go. So here's what happens. John Mark, that's our boy. He's on the team. He made the cut. He's on the mission team. So he's traveling with these guys, he's, he's, he's helping them, who knows what's going to happen, they could get killed, they might get killed, and here's what we happen, have happen in Acts chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Now Paul and his companions set f- sail from Paphos, so again, we're still, um, I'm sorry, not Acts 9, Acts 13, sorry, I wrote the wrong reference down, I was like, that's back in time, how does that happen? Acts 13, 13 and 14. So we're only a few verses in. We're really early in this missionary journey. (laughs) And here's what happens. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and to Perga and to Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John, Mark, deserted them. He got scared. He got overwhelmed and he deserted them. He bailed on them. He quit on them. And he went back home. This is too hard. This is too much. I can't handle this. So he abandoned them. And they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So again, the hardship got to John Mark. He deserted them. He betrayed them. He sinned against them. This very first mission team has trouble and desertion almost immediately, early on. And already this Holy Spirit commissioned mission team already has conflict, already has abandonment, already has desertion, already has division. And this first missionary journey was probably anywhere from six months to two years. And they're back by the end of Acts 14 giving a report of what God had done and some of the hardships that they explained. So they're back in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas want to head out on a second missionary journey in Acts 15. And look what happens, okay? Look what happens in Acts chapter 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God. Let's do a a reunion tour. Let's go through. Let's see how they are, right? Let's go strengthen these churches and believers. And Paul and Barnabas are like inseparable. Like they're, I mean, Paul and Barnabas owe so much to each other. They've been on so many of these things together. They've served the same church together. They've been on mission trips together. And now they're wanting to go on a second mission trip and let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Remember Barnabas is Mr. Encouragement, right? He's the one that takes a chance on people. But Paul thought it best not to take one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul's like, no, there's a standard for this team. The gospel's really important. We can't have deserters. He needs to prove his trustworthiness again. He needs to walk in repentance a little bit longer. He needs to do this. And Barnabas is like, Man, the brother is willing. He's turned. He wants to go with us. He wants to be a part of this thing. Paul, if anyone should, should be about second chances, it's you right? And so they begin to have this really sharp disagreement. Close friends, ministry colleagues, the first two missionaries sent out by the Holy Spirit. And they're having this conflict over John Mark and whether or not he should be a part of their team. Paul thought best not to take one with them that had withdrawn from Pamphylia and had gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement between them. Don't go past that. That is very strong language. There was a sharp disagreement between these friends to the point that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Then Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The word withdrawn there is a very strong word. It means forsake or rebel. Paul felt abandoned and rebelled against by Mark. And that was not going to be easily repaired in Paul's mind. The word sharp disagreement, one Theological commentary says an intense argument, maybe yelling, screaming at each other, sharp contention, implying exasperation, it says, an intense, irreconcilable difference of opinion over John Mark and whether or not he should get to be a part of this team or not. So this is a terrible situation. Imagine the situation from each person's perspective. Think of Barnabas. Barnabas might say, come on, Paul, if anyone should understand grace and second chances, it's you, right? Right? I took a chance on you, can't you take a chance on John Mark? I vouched for you, I'm vouching for him, let's move forward. Let's go share the gospel together and give John Mark a chance, right? Now that's a good gospel reason from Barnabas. Paul, on the other hand, says John Mark deserted us until he proves himself trustworthy, he can't be on the same team. Good gospel reasons to want Mark to prove himself a little bit more before they lean on him in this way. Now imagine John Mark. Imagine John Mark. He's like, I nearly blew up this team once before. Who am I to join this team? But he feels called to go. He feels invited to go. But he's going to be the cause of splitting this mission team. Maybe he should just quietly resign and go back to Jerusalem and not disturb this good mission team. But God seems to have called him to go. There seems to be an invitation to go. So you can just feel the tension in each one of them. For good gospel reasons, all three of them, are wanting to go a direction but they can't do it together and they end up not being able to reconcile and they have to separate they divide into two teams i think we can assume from just the strong words that are used is that there's anger and frustration there's confusion all of them totally convinced of their biblical gospel oriented conviction to their decision their partnership breaks these brothers separate luke doesn't tell us who's right and who's wrong maybe it's not that simple Maybe. Sometimes Christians just disagree. Imagine what this parting of ways must have felt with in the months and weeks afterwards. Did I do the right thing? They're probably all asking that. Did I do the right thing? Should I have been more open to the other side? Could there have been another way for us to kind of work this out together? Should we have paused the trip? Should we have tried to work this out? Am I in the wrong? Will they apologize? Should I apologize? So, So don't skip over this too quickly, that this is at the heart of the Mark story, of the John Mark story. And ultimately, how does this end up playing out in the long run? Does it end up being a failure for the gospel? Does it end up being the end of the line? Does John Mark fall again? Does he fail and desert? We don't really know. Luke goes with Paul, so we get Paul's account. We don't really know all that much that happens with Barnabas and John Mark and their mission team. Did John Mark screw up again? Maybe. We don't know. Were they successful? We just don't know. But here we get something really interesting in Colossians chapter 4, just a few years later. And look at this. This is Paul, who Paul is definitely out on John Mark, at least at this point, right? I don't want to be on the same team as him. I don't want to be on the same mission team. I don't want to be part of the same thing as John Mark. But look what happens. Colossians 4, 10 and 11, just a few years later. He says this to the Colossian church, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. At some point, Mark and Paul began to do ministry again together. Concerning whom he received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So at some point, they began to do ministry together, and Mark ended up being one of the most dependable people Paul ever had. Huh. It wasn't the end of the story Philemon 23 says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So at some point down the line, this conflict gets resolved, and they're able to do ministry again together. And then look at 2 Timothy 4, 10 through 12. Look at what happens. This is Paul's final letter. He knows that this is probably the final letter he'll write. He's writing it to Timothy. And he's saying some of his final will and testament. If you read 2 Timothy, it's kind of Paul's last will and testament. He gets to the very end of it, and look at what he has to say. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Sorry, that's kind of hard to see. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. And Timothy, get Mark and bring him to me before I die. For he is very useful to me in ministry. That's amazing. You see what the gospel did? Gospel took this separation. And Mark, who was not useful to Paul, in fact, he can't even he can't even carry my luggage. To now he's useful to me. In fact, if there's anyone that I want you to go out of your way to bring to me, is I want it to be Mark. So Mark does end up in Jerusalem. He ends up becoming Peter's right hand man, close with Paul, and he gets to sit down and hey Peter, before you die, let's write down your story of Jesus. And he does. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is. First Peter 5.13, Peter says, Mark is here, and he is like a son to me. So the point here is that this book doesn't come floating down as a pillow, as I've said a couple times. It comes forth by the providence of God through really broken men. This, this book has blood on it. This, this book has dirt under its fingernails. Like, John Mark is not writing about a gospel that's distant from him. It's not just an academic exercise. This has been his experience. This has been his life. This Jesus is the one who has has put things together for him. It's gritty. It's real life. It's full of disappointments and failures in the background. John Mark is not worthy to receive the gospel, let alone speak it or write it. And he knows that. And you feel that. Peter is not worthy to receive this gospel, let alone be an apostle for it. Or have his story written down. He's not worthy of that. And you feel that in this gospel. The unworthiness of being able to even share these words, to even be able to read this gospel. It's so glorious. And yet, failures, deserters, sinners get to be conduits of this gospel. And that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point of the gospel, is that those who are unworthy are brought in and made worthy by Jesus. And so, that brings us to Mark one. if you want to turn there. Okay? We'll go very quickly. My time goes so fast. But I just want to highlight this for you and have a couple takeaways. We'll be done. Mark 1, one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a great opening line. This, in the early, in the Roman Empire, probably written in the 60s, this will get you killed because Caesar is Lord. Caesar is a son of God. And Mark, in his very opening line, is saying, Nope, I am going to tell you the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's just bold. That's his thesis statement. That's what we're doing in this gospel. Beginning? What's the beginning? Yeah, it's a a new start. So what Mark is promising in this gospel is there's a new start. There's a new world. There's a new way to live. It seems to echo Genesis 1 where all of a sudden this new world is created. Mark's like, hey, the coming of Jesus was like the creation of a new world. Something world-changing is happening, and this book is the introduction to how eternally epic this will be. And what he's saying is that this book is only the beginning. Jesus is going to do a whole lot more and is doing a whole lot more for sinners than just what's in this book. But this is the beginning. This is where you start. The second phrase there is of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. Evangelion in Hebrew, or not Hebrew, Greek. And it's actually a political word. It's a political word used of someone who would go and announce to the subjects of a king that their king has conquered their enemies and that their kingdom is now safe in peace and prosperity. There's a famous one in 490 BC. Phideepides, I think I say that right, the Athenian courier, runs from the saddle from the, from the battle of Mar- Marathon to Athens with the message of Nike victory, gospel, before promptly collapsing and dying. That's where we get the marathon, 26 miles. This man went to share the gospel, the good news that our king has come and he has won. He has defeated our enemies and we now, our kingdom is secure. So what Mark is saying is that, hey, Jesus Christ is the anointed king who is coming and he is bringing a new kingdom. And it is, it is so world-changing. It's like Genesis 1. It's like a new beginning has come. This good news that a king has come who will defeat our enemies and will make and will bring a kingdom that is secure. Who is this gospel of? It's of Jesus Christ. It's a good news announcement that's centered on a person. The good news is not ultimately a set of facts or a body of information that we just mentally assent to, but it's a person. The gospel is a person. It's about rightly relating to a person that we come to know and trust and love and follow. Jesus, the historical person from Nazareth, Christ, meaning that's not his last name, that's a title, meaning the specially anointed king from the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the specially anointed king. He is the Son of God. That's the last phrase. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This Jesus, who is the especially anointed king, is man, yes, but not just any man. He's a God-man, with the full authority as God, yet also truly human. The original beginning was corrupted by God's failed son, Adam. Now there's a new beginning, with a new Son of God, a new Adam, a new beginning, a gospel beginning with a true and greater Adam, a supreme son of God, better than the old son of God, with authority and desire to vanquish the enemies of sin and shame and Satan and death and hell. So Mark is promising all of that in that very first opening. This is only the beginning of the good news of a king, the anointed king of the Old Testament, who is the son of God, who's come to undo what is wrong in the world, undo what is broken in your life, and to recreate the world. This is the biggest, most epicest of all stories. And it's true. Some takeaways, all right? I'm trying to do this quickly because I'm taking longer than I expected, but that's normal. Four things, four takeaways for you, four things for you to consider. Number one, come and enjoy the story of Jesus with us every Sunday right here, okay? We're only at the very beginning. I've hopefully kind of whetted your appetite for just how amazing this story of Jesus is going to be. You could read this story on your own, and you should, But there is something powerful about gathering with people and hearing the story together. There's something powerful about being part of a church. A gathering where there's believers and maybe skeptics, maybe those that are hearing it for the first time and being surprised by what they see of Jesus and those that have been studying Jesus their whole lives. It's really special to do it together like we are right now. So I encourage you to come back every Sunday and just see what Jesus has to say. Let's just watch him on the screen, on the stage. I promise you it will change you. If you put your eyes on Jesus together with other people putting their eyes on Jesus, it will change you. So I invite you to come every Sunday and participate at whatever level you're ready. Secondly, as we get to the end of this message, identify with Peter and Mark in failure and redemption. Maybe you, can, you feel a little bit like Peter or a little like Mark. Man, I really failed and screwed up. I've made a mess of things. I deserve to be rejected by people. I deserve to be rejected by God. I feel shame, I feel guilt, and maybe you wonder if you even have a place in God's story. Well, Mark is sitting here writing. The fact that you have a copy of his writing is proof that failures can get back in, that deserters have a place, that the gospel is for sinners who want to join this movement. So on behalf of Jesus and Mark, let me say that you do have a place in this story. If there's grace and a place for a man like Peter, then there's grace and place for a man like or woman like you. And if there's a place for a John Mark, a deserter, someone who's unreliable, someone that Paul himself wanted nothing to do with, at least for a time, then there's a place for you too in this story, if you'll come to Jesus. Number three, receive the good news beginning that is offered to you in and by Jesus. That's what Mark is promising. This is the beginning. Like, you're opening up the most amazing story that you've ever read. Can you imagine some of the first people to get that first copy of the book of Mark? And Mark's like, oh, man, you have no idea what you're about to encounter. You're about to encounter the risen Christ through the writings of this book. I can imagine Mark was pretty excited. And maybe that's for you. This is the beginning of a new start for you, a new beginning with Jesus. Maybe this is your opportunity to enter into the greatest story, That is the birthplace of all other great stories. Maybe you have a longing in your heart to be enveloped into some good news, to know that there is a king who conquers your enemies, who brings a kingdom and brings you into a new beginning. And then those of us that have been Christians for a while, let's remember that we're only actually still at the beginning. Mark says this is the beginning, the story here, but I think the implication is that Jesus is going to do more in and for his people than just what's recorded in this book. And I think the rest of the New Testament tells us. If you've been a Christian a while, you might think that you can just coast now. Once you've prayed the prayer, once you've joined a church, you can just sort of coast. That's it. I've got the package deal. And we don't press in sometimes. Don't get bored with Jesus. It doesn't seem like Mark is bored with Jesus at all. He's been walking with Jesus a long time. He's been hanging out with apostles. And it seems like there's an excitement as he writes down this letter. Don't get bored with Jesus and don't think that just because you prayed a prayer, were baptized, joined a church, whatever, that Jesus has done gospeling you. There's always more and will be for eternity This book lays out the essentials of who Jesus is, what he's done to accomplish our salvation. But it's only the beginning. Jesus is still saving and Jesus is still pouring out blessings. Jesus is still interceding for you right now. He will come again and he will forever serve us as our king. Forever. And so come to the servant king. Come to him on his terms. Fix your eyes on him. It's only the beginning and it's good news. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this opportunity to just sort of open it up and begin to think about what's here. God, we thank you for just the beauty of this book, how each story is carefully selected and arranged and put together by Mark, by the Holy Spirit, to make an impact on us, to change our lives. God, I pray that if we feel broken, like we're failures, like we don't belong, that we don't deserve this, I pray that we would realize that that's exactly who the gospel is for. So God, I pray that you would humble us, low enough that we might be able to see Jesus clearly and then lift us up with him through the gospel. God, I pray for my friends here that they would fall in love with Jesus, that they would fix their eyes on him, and that they would be changed, that this would be a new beginning for all of us. In Jesus' name, let's stand. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.